the uh, German reformer Martin Luther was uh, somewhat famous for saying and doing outrageous things. He was an interesting man. For example, in replying to uh, a tract written by the uh, brilliant humanist scholar Erasmus of Rotterdam on the topic of the freedom of the will, listen to how Luther wrote back to him. This is a quote. Luther wrote, It seemed a complete waste of time to reply to your arguments. I have already myself refuted them over and over again. And Philip Melanchthon, in his unsurpassed volume on the doctrines of theology, has trampled them in the dust. That book of his, to my mind, does, deserves not merely to live as long as books are read, but to take its place in the church's canon. Whereas your book, by comparison, struck me as so worthless and poor that my heart went out to you for having defiled your lovely, brilliant flow of language with such vile stuff. I thought it was outrageous to convey material of so low quality in the trappings of such rare eloquence. It is like using gold or silver dishes to carry garden rubbish or dung. So wrote Martin Luther in response to the greatest humanist scholar of his day, Erasmus. We don't write like that anymore. We don't even talk like that anymore. That would be so beyond the pale of social norms today. But that was the way Luther frequently addressed those with whom he disagreed. As I say, Luther was quite a, quite a man. But of his, most, or of his memorable statements, one of the most memorable statements I think that he ever made was in response to a question that was asked of him when he was still serving in a monastery in the process of, of becoming a Catholic priest. One of his superiors there asked him, they, they said, uh, and this was in response to Luther's uh, continual frequenting of the, uh, the confessional booth. In fact, he would go so often every day they thought he was lazy because he would go and he would confess his sin and then he would receive his absolution and he'd walk away and he'd remember something he'd forgot to confess and he'd turn around and go back. And, and that went on all day long. And so one of his superiors said to him, Martin, do you love God? Listen to what Luther said. He said, love God? Sometimes I hate God. That is an interesting statement for a man studying for the ministry to make. What would force Martin Luther to confess something actually that resides in many people's hearts? A hatred of God. Well, the answer, if you know anything about Luther's life at all, is that this statement was made prior to him coming to an understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith. Luther was still laboring under the oppression of the holiness of God and the law of God that hung over him like a sword of Damocles. And his evaluation of his own life and how he fell short of it. And God to him was nothing but an angry judge. And so Luther was bold enough and honest enough to admit that no, he didn't love God, he hated God. There are many, many people who hate God today. And I would submit to you that they hate God for a number of reasons, but fundamentally at its core, they hate God because God is a judge over them. And they do not want to have that judge. They respond in hatred. Now, Luther eventually came to embrace by faith the gospel of salvation of course, Luther's hatred turned to an amazing love. He was a catalyst of the Reformation. Open your Bibles to John 15, beginning at verse 17.
As I said, there are many, if not most, people in the world today, they wouldn't admit it perhaps as Luther had, but they do not love God. In fact, they hate God. And they hate His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they hate those that follow Christ. Let me read this section together, beginning at verse 17. We're picking up something that we started last week here. This I command you, Jesus said, that you love one another. The world hates you. You know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. For if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But this, or but they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Last week we began here with this section of the Upper Room Discourse and we entitled it, Hated Without a Cause. And we said in this section that there are three facts regarding the world's hatred of Christianity that we must understand if we are to diligently pursue Christ and courageously proclaim Him. We need to understand the setting into which we have been called for the diligent pursuit of Christ and the courageous proclamation of the gospel message. We looked at one of them last week. Last week we noted in verses 17 and 18 the the reality of the world's hatred. We said we must understand that reality. This week I want to look at the reasons for the hatred. We need to understand together the, the reasons that Jesus gives for the world's hatred of God the Son, and those that follow the Son. Briefly, to review last week, those of you perhaps weren't here, and to catch you up, verse 17, verse 18, establishes the reality of the hatred. And it's amazing because between verses 7 and 18, we have the juxtaposition of the love of the disciples, one for another, the environment of love in which the disciples of Christ operate, and the hatred of the world. Love is to characterize the disciples of Christ, we noted last time, whereas hatred characterizes the followers of the world system. And it is into that environment of hatred that God has called us to minister the gospel of love. There is a reality to the hatred in which we are called to live and minister. But why? What are the reasons that people hate us? Why is it that Jesus says that you will be hated by the world? Well, there are six of them in this text that I want to look at with you together this morning. They are on your handout, and so you can follow along there. But the first reason that Jesus gives us is in verse 19. And the reason is, is that Christians are different. The first reason that we are hated is because we are different. Verse 19, if you are of the world, the world would love its own, but you are not of the world. I've chosen you out of the world. 
Therefore, the world hates you. By natural birth, all followers of Jesus Christ come into the cosmos, the world system that is in rebellion against God. That is, by nature, what we are born into. And the scripture tells us in many other places that by nature, that's what characterizes our lives before Christ. That we are characterized by a rebellion against God. That we live in a sin-stained, arrogant, fist-shaking way before our Creator. We have no interest in God. We have no interest in the things of God. That is the way that we enter into the world. We are bent upon organizing our own lives according to our own wishes. But something has happened to us. Something happened to them. Look again, verse 19. They were born into the cosmos as well, into that world system, but something happened to them. Jesus says they were chosen out of the world. You see that, verse 19? They were chosen out of the world. Let your eyes glance up to verse 16, where Jesus makes it very specific. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. These 11 disciples born into the cosmos, like us born into the cosmos, have been chosen out of the cosmos to move from a system of hatred and self-absorption to a system of loving sacrifice and service one to another. In space and in time, Jesus made real in their lives what God had eternally decreed before the foundation of the earth. And the same is true for you and I. In space and time, somewhere in the past, God has reached out and chosen to pluck you from the cosmos and to plant you into the kingdom of light. You have been chosen out of the world. And by being chosen out of the world, yet remaining in the world, right, you have been put on a collision course with the cosmos. With the world system in rebellion against God, you are now on a collision course, those of you who are in Christ Jesus. You no longer live according to their principles. We no longer live according to their values. We are running in an opposite direction. And we are going to collide. And the collision is going to be a violent one. In fact, the more we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the more we look like Him who has chosen us, the more violent the collision with the system that is in rebellion against Him will be. Why does the world hate us? It hates us because we are different. We are different. It shouldn't surprise us, beloved. When people express hostility towards us for the sake of the gospel. It should not shock you when someone speaks ill of you for the sake of the gospel. It should not surprise you when, when some measure of, of hostility comes your way because of the gospel. You should, in fact, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for so they persecuted the prophets before you. not unexpected it is inevitable it is inevitable it is like two opposing football teams when the ball is snapped there is going to be a violent collision somewhere on the field we are moving in opposite directions and beloved the world suspects people who are different the people the world ostracizes those who are different from them the world does not embrace it. The world fights against it. Interesting story told in uh, William Barclay's commentary on John about a man by the name of Jonas Hannaway. According to Barclay, Jonas Hannaway was the man who introduced the umbrella to England. Now, if you've ever been to England, you know that there's nothing more practical in England than an umbrella. It rains over there all the time. But when Jonas Hannaway introduced the invention of an umbrella to England, you would think the people would embrace that, wouldn't you? Actually, they would pelt him with rocks and dirt and dung when he would go around with his umbrella open, keeping the rain off his head. 
People don't like difference. Those that are different tend to be persecuted. And Christianity is definitely one of the reasons Jesus says here in verse 19 for the persecution is that we have been chosen out of the world. We've been made an alien to the world. And the world is going to persecute that which is not like itself. Second reason given here is the absence of Christ. Verses 20 and the first part of 21. The absence of Christ. Look again at the text. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Jesus had just told them that a little bit earlier in the evening in John chapter 13. He had spoken it there in the context of humility when he had knelt and washed their feet and he had said, a a slave is not greater than his master. If the master will bend and wash your feet, then you go and do likewise. Here he takes the same truism and he applies it to the issue of persecution. Here it's not about humility, it's about persecution. And he says there is an equality here between master and slave with regard to persecution. And he elaborates it in a pair of conditional clauses. Look again, verse 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your word also. If they persecuted me, and they did, is what the clause means, then they will persecute you. If they kept my word, and they haven't, neither will they keep your word. Do not be surprised. He's speaking again to the 11 here, but by extension to us as well. Do not be surprised. If people have no interest in the word of Christ, they had no interest when he walked on this planet, they have no interest in his word now. It should not surprise us. The force of this uh, last clause is brought out by, uh, by John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, he said, quote, they will pay the same attention to your words as they did to mine. That is none. That is none. People are not interested in hearing from the Bible. It is repugnant to them. It is aggravating to them. It will get their dander up pretty near faster than anything you can think of. Open your Bible and start quoting Bible verses to somebody and you will watch the blood pressure rise. You can see it's like their head becomes like a thermometer. It gets redder and redder. They are not interested in hearing. There is such an antithesis between the world and its rebellion and the word of God. That Jesus says over in John 3, it's impossible It is impossible for someone to even see the kingdom of God unless the Spirit works in them first. Beloved, we are on a collision course. But notice again that further it says, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. What does he mean? What he means by this is that they are no longer going to be able to get at me, so they're going to get at you in my place. I mean, the world can no longer persecute Jesus Christ directly. They did their worst to him on the cross. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is out of reach. But his body remains here on earth, doesn't it? The body of Christ. And so what Jesus is saying here is that in my absence, they will persecute you. Not because of who we are, but because of who we are associated with. They can't get at Christ anymore, but they can get at us, and that's what they will do. We are hated because they can't reach Christ. Turn with me over to John 9. Let me show you this. John, I'm sorry, not John 9, Acts 9. John 9 is a good chapter, too. We'll use it a little bit later. But Acts 9 is where we want to be now. People can no longer take out their hatred upon Jesus Christ, so they take it out upon his followers. Acts chapter 9 is the, is the conversion of Saul 
But notice, he's on his way to Damascus, and the verses I want to key in on are 4 and 5. He's on his way there to persecute the church, and Jesus appears to him. In verse 4, it says, He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Now, Saul is rounding up followers of Christ and putting them in prison. But Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting not the church? Why are you persecuting not my followers? Why are you persecuting me? He said to him, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, when we are persecuted for the sake of Christ, it is, it is not in something inherent in us that they are after. They are after Christ. They can't get at him, so they settle for us. Now, that brings a, a note of needed caution, I think, in this whole issue of being hated. We need to be sure that we are hated for the sake of Christ and not for other reasons. We are not to be hated because of our politics. What do I mean by that? Well, beloved, I, I believe that there is a, a large danger for the evangelical movement in America to become so politicized, to be so drawn into the political process, to be so interested in legislative change and feeding at the trough of the American taxpayer that we become, in essence, another special interest group. And that the hatred the world has of us has nothing to do with our following of Christ and has everything in the world to do with our political affiliations. At the risk of being contemporary and... Um, receiving a note in the offering plate. I'll go ahead with this anyway. Uh, I was invited, and I appreciate the invitation, and if I was invited, I'd go again. So let me just put all that out front, okay? I was invited and, and attended a couple of weeks ago the Inland Valley Prayer Breakfast. Okay? This was is in conjunction with the National Day of Prayer, something that was instituted by one of our founding fathers, Dwight David Eisenhower. Okay? So I attended. Yeah, that's right. That was tongue-in-cheek. Okay? I want you to understand where it came from. All right? I attended the, the Inland Valley Prayer Breakfast, and I'm glad I went. And there was profit in me in going. But, having said that, there were some things that I observed there that I think are, are illustrative of this issue of being hated because of our politics, which is a real danger for the church. The... Um, there is a strong post-millennial theme that flows through this National Day of Prayer emphasis. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that promises of the Old Covenant that apply to the nation of Israel are being extracted from their context and applied to the church in America without discernment. And there is, a, there is a prevailing notion that I detected there of the idea that, that if America will just get back to her Christian roots and Christ will be glorified and all kinds of wonderful things will begin to happen. Turn, um, turn to Second Chronicles with me. Chapter 7. There are a number of covenant promises made in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. These covenant promises belong to Israel. And they cannot be extracted from the Old Testament and applied to the church of God. 
And we do ourselves no end of mischief when we begin to do such things. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 14 is the one you've heard, so let me start with that one. And my people who are called by my name, if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. How many have heard that verse used in conjunction with national prayer events? If you're at all familiar, you've got to have heard that because it's woven in to the very fabric of these things. The problem is that you need to look to verse 13 first because 2 Chronicles 7 occurs in a context. Look at verse 13. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people and my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and seek my face and so forth, I will heal their land. Verse 13, beloved, is talking about the covenant cursings of Deuteronomy chapter 28 that God had promised would come on Israel if they turned from the Mosaic covenant. That he would afflict their land. And what is being said here in 2 Chronicles 7 is that if you will turn back to God under the terms of the Mosaic covenant, then he will heal your land. Not heal your land of pornography or heal your land of abortion or heal your land of no end of other social ills. It is heal your land of the devastation that he has brought upon it because you have violated the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. It is very specific. It is rain, it is locusts, and it is pestilence that he will heal. God has never, ever made a covenant with America. There are no biblical covenants with America. That's huge. Because we live in a day and age when many in evangelicalism would like to extract the covenants of the Old Testament and somehow apply them to the nation of the United States of America as if the terms come to us and they don't. They do not. If there's any way that the covenants of the Old Testament apply to the nation of America, it would perhaps be in Genesis 12:3, the original Abrahamic covenant, where God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. You could try to make your case that as America deals with the nation of Israel, there is some measure of blessing that would come to us. I would listen to your argument. But, beloved, there are no direct covenants between the United States of America and the God of the universe. None. None. Individually, we have access to the new covenant. Individually, through our relationship with Jesus Christ, we have access to some of the new covenant. That His Holy Spirit will reside within us. That He will put His law within our hearts. That He will remember our sins no more. Those are individually available to United States residents based upon their faith association with Jesus Christ. But if you were to carefully read the terms of the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31, you would see there was a land promised there too. So not even all of the terms of the New Covenant of ours. So, beloved, let's not be hated because of our politics. If you want to vote Republican, you want to vote Democrat, you want to vote Independent, do it. Exercise your citizenship. But Jesus Christ is not a Republican. Jesus Christ is not a Democrat. Jesus Christ is not an independent. There is no political party of God in this country. We need, the sooner we know that, the sooner our hatred will be resolved by our attachment to Christ and not by our political association. Let's make sure we're not loved, secondly, based on, or hated based on personalities. Let's make sure that our speech is gracious, that it is compassionate, that we are kind, not caustic and angry as we address people in the marketplace. We don't have time to go there, but jot this down and look it up yourself. 1 Peter 2.20. 1 Peter 4.12-19, talking about Jesus Christ when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Let's make sure that it's not our personality that people hate, that they respond negatively to. Let's make sure that it's the gospel that they're responding negatively to and not to us because of some defect in our character. 
Third, let's make sure that it is not provocation that they are responding to in hatred. If you read the Gospels and, and pay attention to the ministry of Jesus Christ, you know that at times he was incredibly direct and, and even caustic at times in his communication, but it was only with those religious leaders who knew the truth about who he was and refused it. For them, there was no end of the, of the severity of his language. Woe to you, hypocrites, right? Scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Yet for others, he was tender, he was compassionate, like those who are sheep without a shepherd. We need to make sure that when we share the gospel, we don't mistake gospel boldness for a provocation. We need to learn, and I mean learn, and I'm talking to me, we need to learn to weep with compassion over those that are lost. Not to see them as our enemies, but to see them as a lost sinner who needs Jesus Christ. Jesus was tender. Jesus was compassionate. We need to emulate that. 1 Peter 3.15, talking about us making a defense of our faith. It says it has to be done with gentleness and reverence. You can needlessly provoke people with the gospel. Let's make sure that we're bold in a gospel boldness and not provoking people by the foolishness of our communications. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. These matters. Third reason that the world hates us. Back to John 15. The third reason the world hates us is because of their ignorance of God. Second half of verse 21, because they do not know the one who sent me. Let your eyes drop down to verse 3, chapter 16. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Jesus is saying here, if the Jews of his day had truly known who he was, they truly realized the full impact of who he was, they would not have killed him. They would not have persecuted him. Now, that's a, that's a difficult statement to get your arms around, isn't it? That the persecution comes out of their ignorance. And if that's true, you might begin to think, well, then they're off the hook, right? Except we have a statement in our society that says ignorance of the law is no excuse, Right? By the way, again, jot this down. We're not going to go there. But go take a look at Luke 23 on your own time. Verses 33 to 38. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 and 8, where Jesus says very clearly that if people had really known what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. There's an ignorance of God, but the ignorance, beloved, is inexcusable. It is an inexcusable ignorance. They should have known what they did. They should have known who he was. They should not have crucified him. They should not persecute his followers. But in ignorance, they do. So they are ignorant, but they are morally culpable for their ignorance. Persecution of Jesus Christ... It demonstrates, again, look at chapter 16, verse 3. It demonstrates the world's complete failure to know God and His only Son. The Jews of that day, they would have protested this statement. They would have claimed, we are followers of Jehovah. And Jesus is saying, you're not the follower of Jehovah. You do not know Him. And you prove that you do not know Him by your persecution of me. So another reason why people hate Christians is they are ignorant, morally culpable for their ignorance, yes, but they are ignorant of God. The fourth reason in John 15 is in verse 23, they hate God. There is a hatred of God. He who hates me hates my father also. It is a very emphatic statement. 
Jesus and the Father are so connected in this statement, hatred of one equates to hatred of another. And very few people would admit to hating God. We talked about that earlier. And certainly these early Jewish protests or persecutors would have denied that they hated God. They would have said they loved God, that they were following God. But, but Jesus leaves no wiggle room here. The rejection of Christ is the rejection of God. The hatred of Christ is the hatred of God. Because what these people and those that follow in their footsteps, what they really love, the God they really love is a God of their own creation. They have formed a God that is acceptable to them, a God to whom they can love, and that is not the true God. And so when they are confronted with the true God, when he confronts their sin, their rebellion, their alienation from him, their response is hatred. We are hated because people hate God. reason. There is a preference for darkness. Some have a preference for darkness. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Verses 24 and 25, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father also. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. The coming of Jesus Christ provoked hatred. It provoked the ultimate manifestation of sin. That is the rebellion against God. It was a conscious and deliberate disbelief. It was a morally culpable disbelief. We won't turn there again. Mark it down and go look on your own. But Luke chapter 20 verses 9 through 18 is given right before the Passion Week. It's a parable. And in in that parable, it's the the parable of the the sharecroppers or or the vine dressers who rent the vineyard out from from the, uh, the owner. And when it comes time to collect his fruit, he sends someone to collect it, right? And they kill them. They abuse them. And he says, finally, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. And those uh, sharecroppers say, here's the son. He's the heir. If we kill him, the whole deal is ours. You follow along in that text there because after Jesus tells that parable, it says they understood he was speaking about them. The leadership of Israel knew who Christ was and refused him. And the consequences of that monstrous sin of unbelief is a punishment that Jesus says earlier will be greater than that that was brought upon Sodom and Gomorrah. People prefer darkness. People prefer darkness. Look at John 3. Verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and has not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Back to John 15 again. Look. Verse 22, they've rejected his word. Verse 24, they rejected his works. Thou, they have both seen and hated me. Greek perfect tense. These are settled attitudes. They have seen who I am. They have heard my words and they rejected them because they love darkness and they hate me. They hate me. But be of good cheer because verse 27 says that it is all done in order that the word of God may be fulfilled. The citation here is from Psalm 69. That is a messianic psalm. David penned it. 
He says, they hated me, David said, without cause, although how much more they hated the greater son of David. What an amazing thing it is, beloved, huh? That the, reject, the hatred and rejection of the Messiah, the greatest crime and evil ever done in the universe, becomes the source of the greatest blessing available to man. For it is in the hatred and persecution and crucifixion of Jesus Christ that salvation is now opened to the world. At times it seems like the world is out of control. It seems like the hostility to Christ is so great it will overcome the church. Christ says here, their hatred of me is just a fulfillment of the scriptures. Their own scriptures say that they would hate me. The persecution of Christ becomes the deliverance of the world. That leads us to our sixth reason for hatred. Chapter 16 and verse 2. A misguided religious devotion... They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. There is a misguided religious devotion. Back in John chapter 9, you'll remember there it was the blind man Jesus healed. And that's the first inkling we get in John's gospel that those that would attach themselves to Jesus Christ would be put out of the synagogue. You remember the parents of that potentially young man were so intimidated by that penalty that they passed the buck. They wouldn't, they wouldn't speak up for their own son. They, they threw him to the wolves and let him deal with it himself. And he spoke boldly and was put from the synagogue. What does it mean to be put out of the synagogue? Again, look at verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. To be excommunicated from the synagogue in the first century Israel was to be cut off from the life of the nation. It was to have all your social ties severed. Family relationships separated. It was to be viewed by your former friends as worse than a pagan. It was to lose your job. It was to be exiled from your family and it was to be denied an honorable burial. The stakes were exceedingly high. Exceedingly high. They will make you outcast from the synagogue. They will disfellowship you from the synagogue. They will cut you off from the life of Israel. Or to Acts chapter 3 for a moment. Not 3, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 is Peter's Pentecost sermon. He talks about how they've crucified their own Messiah. And he says, beginning in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? It has dawned on them they have just killed their only hope. Look how Peter responds to them. Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off and as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent, that means turn from the nation that crucified its Messiah and publicly by baptism in his name identify yourself with that one who was crucified. In a word, be excommunicated. From the synagogue. Be rejected by your nation. Turn your back on everything that you know and you love. Submit yourself 
to the incredible persecution that will come upon you. That Jesus says again back in John 15, it will begin with excommunication, but it is soon coming beyond that when they will even kill you and think that they are offering service to God. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear. The Apostle Paul was out rounding up and executing Christians because he believed it was what God would have him do. It was his act of worship. It goes on today. There are many in the world who believe that the persecution of the followers of Christ, even the execution of the followers of Christ, is a religious duty. Go to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia where they still imprison, torture, and even behead followers of Christ because they're barbaric people? No. Because they understand it to be the height of religious devotion. It was true in the first century to these 11 that persecution was going to come to them. The Apostle Paul says five times he received 39 lashes. The only ones who handed out 39 lashes were the Jews. Five times he was flogged by the nation. So for them, the persecution, at least initially, came through the Jewish nation itself. Over time, it has broadened. The principle remains. It is those believing they're offering religious devotion to their God motivates their persecution, the followers of Christ. We're hated for many different reasons. We're hated because we're different from the world. We're hated because they want to get at Christ, but they can't, so they take the next best thing. That's us. We're hated because people are ignorant of the true God. We're hated because people hate God himself. We're hated because people prefer darkness to light. We're hated because they have a misguided religious devotion. They got plenty of reason to hate us. And they do. So how are we to respond? How are we to respond? I'll just give you a clue. It's here in verses 26 and 27. We're going to develop this next week as we finish out this section, but... Verses 26 and 27 tell us how we are to respond in the face of this hatred. If you're here with us this morning and perhaps you're hearing things you've never heard before. If you've heard about following Jesus Christ, but you've never heard about being hated if you follow him. I mean, no one's ever told you, you know, come to Jesus Christ. You Maybe you've heard, come to Jesus Christ. Your life's going to be a whole lot better, right? You're going to fix your marriage. You're going to straighten out your kids. You're going to get a better job, and you know, life's going to be sweet. That's not in the Bible, by the way. What the Bible says is come to Jesus Christ, and the world's going to hate you. Your life may not get sweet. In fact, it's most likely it won't get sweet. So why in the world would you come? What kind of deal is that? What kind of a salesman offers a product that he tells you is defective up front? That's a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to come to Jesus Christ. It is not the product that is defective, beloved. It is the sales pitch. When you come to understand your alienation from God, when you come to understand that there is no escape from his judgment, when you come to understand that you are without hope in this world, without resources, that there is no place for you to go, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, when you call out to God, God, be merciful to me, sinner. I believe, I understand Christ died in my place. 
and that I willingly renounce my life for him, that I will give up all to follow him, that I will pick up my cross and follow him. When you understand that, then being hated without a cause seems like a small price to pay. If you want to talk further on these things, we will have spiritual counselors available here over by this cross after service. Come and you talk. Pray that you commit your life by faith to Christ. Let's pray. God, our Father, if we were selling a product, it would be the most foolish way to go about doing it. We would be selling a product that has no appeal. And we, as the salespeople, being so defective ourselves, so weak, so foolish, so unconvincing, there is nothing, our Father, humanly speaking, that we can do or say or be that is attractive. We're right where you want us. That when someone embraces Christ by faith, you will receive the glory and you alone. Our Father, what a wonderful, marvelous salvation you really offer. Give us faith to believe. Give us faith to follow. Give us boldness to proclaim. We pray in the name of the one who died, who was exalted, and is coming again, the Lord Jesus Christ.